Today I'll be reading the 2003 opinion of the court in Virginia v. Black, a case that asked whether a Virginia law prohibiting the burning of a cross with the intent of intimidating any person or group violated the First Amendment. The court held that the First Amendment allows a state to prohibit cross-burning with the intent to intimidate, but the Virginia law treated any and all cross-burning as prima facie evidence of intent to intimidate, and that's what made the law unconstitutional as it was written. This is a really interesting opinion in general, providing a brief historical review of cross-burning and the KKK in America. But today, I'm reading this opinion in particular in light of a new case that the court has agreed to hear later this term, Counterman v. Colorado, asking, in order to establish that a statement is a true threat, which we already know is not protected by the First Amendment, must the government show that the speaker subjectively knew or intended the threatening nature of the statement, or is it enough to show that an objective, reasonable person would regard the statement as a threat of violence? In this opinion, the court addresses what exactly makes a threat a true threat, which is why I thought that those of you who are interested in the yet-to-be-scheduled Counterman v. Colorado might like to hear it. And now, the 2003 opinion of the court in Virginia v. Black. Justice O'Connor announced the judgment of the court and delivered the opinion of the court with respect to parts 1, 2, and 3. In this case, we consider whether the Commonwealth of Virginia's statute banning cross-burning with an intent to intimidate a person or group of persons violates the First Amendment. We conclude that while a state consistent with the First Amendment, may ban cross-burning carried out with the intent to intimidate, the provision in the Virginia statute treating any cross-burning as prima facie evidence of intent to intimidate renders the statute unconstitutional in its current form. Part 1 Respondents Barry Black, Richard Elliott, and Jonathan O'Mara were convicted separately of violating Virginia's cross-burning statute, section 18.2-423. That statute provides, It shall be unlawful for any person or persons, with the intent of intimidating any person or group of persons, to burn, or to cause to be burned, a cross on the property of another, a highway, or other public place. Any person who shall violate any provision of this section shall be guilty of a Class six felony. Any such burning of a cross shall be prima facie evidence of an intent to intimidate a person or group of persons. On August 22, 1998, Barry Black led a Ku Klux Klan rally in Carroll County, Virginia. Twenty-five to thirty people attended this gathering, which occurred on private property with the permission of the owner, who was in attendance. The property was located on an open field just off Brushy Fork Road, State Highway 690, in Kana, Virginia. When the sheriff of Carroll County learned that a Klan rally was occurring in his county, 
he went to observe it from the side of the road. During the approximately one hour that the sheriff was present, about 40 to 50 cars passed the site, a few of which stopped to ask the sheriff what was happening on the property. Eight to ten houses were located in the vicinity of the rally. Rebecca Secrest, who was related to the owner of the property where the rally took place, sat and watched to see what was going on from the lawn of her in-law's house. She looked on as the clan prepared for the gathering and subsequently conducted the rally itself. During the rally, Secrest heard clan members speak about what they were and what they believed in. The speakers, quote, talked real bad about the blacks and the Mexicans, unquote. One speaker told the assembled gathering that he would love to take a 30-30 and just randomly shoot the blacks. The speakers also talked about President Clinton and Hillary Clinton and about how their tax money goes to the black people. Secrist testified that this language made her very scared. At the conclusion of the rally, the crowd circled around a 25- to 30-foot cross. The cross was between 300 and 350 yards away from the road. According to the sheriff, the cross then all of a sudden went up in flame. As the cross burned, the clan played Amazing Grace over the loudspeakers. Secris stated that the cross burning made her feel awful and terrible. When the sheriff observed the cross burning, he informed his deputy that they needed to find out who's responsible and explain to them that they cannot do this in the state of Virginia. The sheriff then went down the driveway, entered the rally, and asked who was responsible for burning the cross. Black responded, I guess I am because I'm the head of the rally. The sheriff then told Black, There's a law in the state of Virginia that you cannot burn a cross, and I'll have to place you under arrest for this. Black was charged with burning a cross with the intent of intimidating a person or group of persons. At his trial, the jury was instructed that intent to intimidate means the motivation to intentionally put a person or a group of persons, in fear of bodily harm. Such fear must arise from the willful conduct of the accused rather than from some mere temperamental timidity of the victim. The trial court also instructed the jury that the burning of a cross by itself is sufficient evidence from which you may infer the required intent. When Black objected to this last instruction on First Amendment grounds, the prosecutor responded that the instruction was taken straight out of the Virginia model instructions. The jury found Black guilty and fined him $2,500. The Court of Appeals of Virginia affirmed Black's conviction. On May 2, 1998, respondents Richard Elliott and Jonathan O'Mara, as well as a third individual, attempted to burn a cross on the yard of James Jubilee. Jubilee, an African-American, was Elliot's next-door neighbor in Virginia Beach, Virginia. 
Four months prior to the incident, Jubilee and his family had moved from California to Virginia Beach. Before the cross burning, Jubilee spoke to Elliot's mother to inquire about shots being fired from behind the Elliot home. Elliot's mother explained to Jubilee that her son shot firearms as a hobby and that he used the backyard as a firing range. On the night of May 2nd, respondents drove a truck onto Jubilee's property, planted a cross, and set it on fire. Their apparent motive was to get back at Jubilee for complaining about the shooting in the backyard. Respondents were not affiliated with the Klan. The next morning, as Jubilee was pulling his car out of the driveway, he noticed the partially burned cross approximately 20 feet from his house. After seeing the cross, Jubilee was very nervous because he didn't know what would be the next phase, and because a cross burned in your yard tells you that it's just the first round. Elliot and O'Mara were charged with attempted cross-burning and conspiracy to commit cross-burning. O'Mara pleaded guilty to both counts, reserving the right to challenge the constitutionality of the cross-burning statute. The judge sentenced O'Mara to 90 days in jail and fined him $2,500. The judge also suspended 45 days of the sentence and $1,000 of the fine. At Elliot's trial, the judge originally ruled that the jury would be instructed that the burning of a cross by itself is sufficient evidence from which you may infer the required intent. At trial, however, the court instructed the jury that the Commonwealth must prove that the defendant intended to commit cross-burning, that the defendant did a direct act toward the commission of the cross-burning, and that the defendant had the intent of intimidating any person or group of persons. The court did not instruct the jury on the meaning of the word intimidate, nor on the prima facie evidence provision. The jury found Elliot guilty of attempted cross-burning and acquitted him of conspiracy to commit cross-burning. It sentenced Elliot to 90 days in jail and a $2,500 fine. The Court of Appeals of Virginia affirmed the convictions of both Elliot and O'Mara. Each respondent appealed to the Supreme Court of Virginia, arguing that Section 18.2-423 is facially unconstitutional. The Supreme Court of Virginia consolidated all three cases and held that the statute is unconstitutional on its face. It held that the Virginia cross-burning statute is analytically indistinguishable from the ordinance found unconstitutional in RAV v. St. Paul from 1992. The Virginia statute, the court held, discriminates on the basis of content since it selectively chooses only cross-burning because of its distinctive message. The court also held that the prima facie evidence provision renders the statute overbroad because the enhanced probability of prosecution under the statute chills the expression of protected speech. Three justices dissented, concluding that the Virginia cross-burning statute passes constitutional muster because it proscribes only conduct that constitutes a true threat. 
the justices noted that unlike the ordinance found unconstitutional in RAV v. St. Paul, the Virginia statute does not just target cross-burning on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. Rather, the Virginia statute applies to any individual who burns a cross for any reason, provided the cross is burned with the intent to intimidate. The dissenters also disagreed with the majority's analysis of the prima facie provision because the inference alone is clearly insufficient to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that a defendant burned a cross with the intent to intimidate. The dissent noted that the burden of proof still remains on the Commonwealth to prove intent to intimidate. We granted certiorari. Part 2 Cross-burning originated in the 14th century as a means for Scottish tribes to signal each other. Sir Walter Scott used cross-burnings for dramatic effect in The Lady of the Lake, where the burning cross signified both a summons and a call to arms. Cross-burning in this country, however, long ago became unmoored from its Scottish ancestry. Burning a cross in the United States is inextricably intertwined with the history of the Ku Klux Klan. The first Ku Klux Klan began in Pulaski, Tennessee, in the spring of 1866. Although the Ku Klux Klan started as a social club, it soon changed into something far different. The Klan fought Reconstruction and the corresponding drive to allow freed blacks to participate in the political process. Soon the Klan imposed a veritable reign of terror throughout the South. The Klan employed tactics such as whipping, threatening to burn people at the stake, and murder. The Klan's victims included blacks, southern whites who disagreed with the Klan, and carpetbagger northern whites. The activities of the Ku Klux Klan prompted legislative action at the national level. In 1871, President Grant sent a message to Congress indicating that the Klan's reign of terror in the southern states had rendered life and property insecure. In response, Congress passed what is now known as the Ku Klux Klan Act. President Grant used these new powers to suppress the Klan in South Carolina, the effect of which severely curtailed the Klan in other states as well. By the end of Reconstruction in 1877, the first Klan no longer existed. The genesis of the second Klan began in 1905, with the publication of Thomas Dixon's The Klansman, an historical romance of the Ku Klux Klan. Dixon's book was a sympathetic portrait of the first Klan, depicting the Klan as a group of heroes saving the South from blacks and the horrors of Reconstruction. Although the first Klan never actually practiced cross-burning, Dixon's book depicted the Klan burning crosses to celebrate the execution of former slaves. Cross-burning thereby became associated with the first Ku Klux Klan, 
when D.W. Griffith turned Dixon's book into the movie The Birth of a Nation in 1915, the association between cross-burning and the Klan became indelible. In addition to the cross-burnings in the movie, a poster advertising the film displayed a hooded Klansman riding a hooded horse, with his left hand holding the reins of the horse and his right hand holding a burning cross above his head. Soon thereafter, in November 1915, the Second Clan began. From the inception of the Second Clan, cross-burnings have been used to communicate both threats of violence and messages of shared ideology. The first initiation ceremony occurred on Stone Mountain near Atlanta, Georgia. While a 40-foot cross burned on the mountain, the clan members took their oaths of loyalty. This cross burning was the second recorded instance in the United States. The first known cross burning in the country had occurred a little over one month before the clan initiation, when a Georgia mob celebrated the lynching of Leo Frank by burning a gigantic cross on Stone Mountain that was visible throughout Atlanta. The new clan's ideology did not differ much from that of the first clan. As one clan publication emphasized, we avow the distinction between the races and we shall ever be true to the faithful maintenance of white supremacy and will strenuously oppose any compromise thereof in any and all things. Violence was also an elemental part of this new clan. By September 1921, the New York World newspaper documented 152 acts of Klan violence, including four murders, 41 floggings, and 27 tar and featherings. Often the Klan used cross-burnings as a tool of intimidation and a threat of impending violence. For example, in 1939 and 1940, the Klan burned crosses in front of synagogues and churches. After one cross burning at a synagogue, a Klan member noted that if the cross burning did not shut up the Jews, we'll cut a few throats and see what happens. In Miami in 1941, the Klan burned four crosses in front of a proposed housing project, declaring, We are here to keep niggers out of your town. When the law fails you, call on us. And in Alabama in 1942, in a whirlwind climax to weeks of flogging and terror, the Klan burned crosses in front of a union hall and in front of a union leader's home on the eve of a labor election. These cross burnings embodied threats to people whom the Klan deemed antithetical to its goals, and these threats had special force given the long history of Klan violence. The Klan continued to use cross burnings to intimidate after World War II. In one incident, an African American schoolteacher who recently moved his family into a block formerly occupied by whites and asked the protection of city police after the burning of a cross in his front yard. And after a cross-burning in Suffolk, Virginia, during the late 1940s, 
the Virginia governor stated that he would not allow any of our people of any race to be subjected to terrorism or intimidation in any form by the Klan or any other organization. These incidents of cross-burning, among others, helped prompt Virginia to enact its first version of the cross-burning statute in 1950. The decision of this court in Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, along with the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, sparked another outbreak of Klan violence. These acts of violence included bombings, beatings, shootings, stabbings, and mutilations. Members of the Klan burned crosses on the lawns of those associated with the civil rights movement, assaulted the Freedom Riders, bombed churches, and murdered blacks as well as whites, whom the Klan viewed as sympathetic toward the civil rights movement. Throughout the history of the Klan, cross-burnings have also remained potent symbols of shared group identity and ideology. The burning cross became a symbol of the Klan itself and a central figure of Klan gatherings. According to the Klan constitution, the fiery cross was the emblem of that sincere, unselfish devotedness of all clansmen to the sacred purpose and principles we have espoused. And the Klan has often published its newsletters and magazines under the name The Fiery Cross. At Klan gatherings across the country, cross-burning became the climax of the rally or the initiation. Posters advertising an upcoming Klan rally often featured a Klan member holding a cross. Typically, a cross-burning would start with a prayer by the Clavern minister, followed by the singing of onward Christian soldiers. The Klan would then light the cross on fire as the members raised their left arm toward the burning cross and sang the old rugged cross. Throughout the Klan's history, the Klan continued to use the burning cross in their ritual ceremonies. For its own members, the cross was a sign of celebration and ceremony. During a joint Nazi-Klan rally in 1940, the proceeding concluded with the wedding of two Klan members who were married in full Klan regalia beneath a blazing cross. In response to anti-masking bills introduced in state legislatures after World War II, the Klan burned crosses in protest. On March 26, 1960, the Klan engaged in rallies and cross-burnings throughout the South in an attempt to recruit 10 million members. Later in 1960, the Klan became an issue in the third debate between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy, with both candidates renouncing the Klan. After this debate, the Klan reiterated its support for Nixon by burning crosses and cross-burnings featured prominently in Klan rallies when the Klan attempted to move toward more non-violent tactics to stop integration. In short, a burning cross has remained a symbol of Klan ideology and of Klan unity. To this day, regardless of whether the message is a political one or whether the message is also meant to intimidate, the burning of a cross is a symbol of hate. 
and while cross-burning sometimes carries no intimidating message, at other times the intimidating message is the only message conveyed. For example, when a cross-burning is directed at a particular person not affiliated with the clan, the burning cross often serves as a message of intimidation designed to inspire in the victim a fear of bodily harm. Moreover, the history of violence associated with the clan shows that the possibility of injury or death is not just hypothetical. The person who burns a cross directed at a particular person often is making a serious threat meant to coerce the victim to comply with the clan's wishes, unless the victim is willing to risk the wrath of the clan. Indeed, as the cases of respondents Elliot and O'Mara indicate, individuals without clan affiliation who wish to threaten or menace another person sometimes use cross-burning because of this association between a burning cross and violence. In sum, while a burning cross does not inevitably convey a message of intimidation, often the cross-burner intends that the recipients of the message fear for their lives, and when a cross-burning is used to intimidate, few, if any, messages are more powerful. Part 3 Section A the First Amendment, applicable to the states through the Fourteenth Amendment, provides that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. The hallmark of the protection of free speech is to allow free trade in ideas, even ideas that the overwhelming majority of people might find distasteful or discomforting. Thus, the First Amendment ordinarily denies a state the power to prohibit dissemination of social, economic, and political doctrine which a vast majority of its citizens believes to be false and fraught with evil consequence. The First Amendment affords protection to symbolic or expressive conduct as well as to actual speech. The protections afforded by the First Amendment, however, are not absolute, and we have long recognized that the government may regulate certain categories of expression consistent with the Constitution. The First Amendment permits restrictions upon the content of speech in a few limited areas, which are of such slight social value as a step to truth that any benefit that may be derived from them is clearly outweighed by the social interest in order and morality. Thus, for example, a state may punish those words which by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. We have consequently held that fighting words, those personally abusive epithets which, when addressed to the ordinary citizen, are, as a matter of common knowledge, inherently likely to provoke violent reaction, are generally proscribable under the First Amendment. Furthermore, the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not permit a state to forbid or proscribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation 
except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. And the First Amendment also permits a state to ban a true threat. True threats encompass those statements where the speaker means to communicate a serious expression of an intent to commit an act of unlawful violence to a particular individual or group of individuals. The speaker need not actually intend to carry out the threat. Rather, a prohibition on true threats protects individuals from the fear of violence and from the disruption that fear engenders, in addition to protecting people from the possibility that the threatened violence will occur. Intimidation, in the constitutionally proscribable sense of the word, is a type of true threat, where a speaker directs a threat to a person or group of persons with the intent of placing the victim in fear of bodily harm or death. Respondents do not contest that some cross-burnings fit within this meaning of intimidating speech, and rightly so. As noted in Part 2, the history of cross-burning in this country shows that cross-burning is often intimidating, intending to create a pervasive fear in victims that they are a target of violence. Section B. The Supreme Court of Virginia ruled that in light of R.A.V. v. City of St. Paul, even if it is constitutional to ban cross-burning in a content-neutral manner, the Virginia cross-burning statute is unconstitutional because it discriminates on the basis of content and viewpoint. It is true, as the Supreme Court of Virginia held, that the burning of a cross is symbolic expression. The reason why the Klan burns a cross at its rallies, or individuals place a burning cross on someone else's lawn, is that the burning cross represents the message that the speaker wishes to communicate. Individuals burn crosses as opposed to other means of communication because cross-burning carries a message in an effective and dramatic manner. The fact that cross-burning is symbolic expression, however, does not resolve the constitutional question. The Supreme Court of Virginia relied upon R.A.V. v. City of St. Paul to conclude that once a statute discriminates on the basis of this type of content, the law is unconstitutional. We disagree. In R.A.V., we held that a local ordinance that banned certain symbolic conduct, including cross-burning, when done with the knowledge that such conduct would arouse anger, alarm, or resentment in others on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender, was unconstitutional. We held that the ordinance did not pass constitutional muster because it discriminated on the basis of content by targeting only those individuals who provoke violence, on a basis specified in the law. The ordinance did not cover those who wish to use fighting words in connection with other ideas 
to express hostility, for example, on the basis of political affiliation, union membership, or homosexuality. This content-based discrimination was unconstitutional because it allowed the city to impose special prohibitions on those speakers who express views on disfavored subjects. We did not hold in RAV that the First Amendment prohibits all forms of content-based discrimination within a proscribable area of speech. Rather, we specifically stated that some types of content discrimination did not violate the First Amendment. When the basis for the content discrimination consists entirely of the very reason the entire class of speech at issue is proscribable, no significant danger of idea or viewpoint discrimination exists. Such a reason, having been adjudged neutral enough to support exclusion of the entire class of speech from First Amendment protection, is also neutral enough to form the basis of distinction within the class. Indeed, we noted that it would be constitutional to ban only a particular type of threat. The federal government can criminalize only those threats of violence that are directed against the president, since the reasons why threats of violence are outside the First Amendment have special force when applied to the person of the president. And a state may choose to prohibit only that obscenity which is the most patently offensive in its prurience, i.e., that which involves the most lascivious displays of sexual activity. Consequently, while the holding of RAV does not permit a state to ban only obscenity based on offensive political messages, only those threats against the president that mention his policy on aid to inner cities, the First Amendment permits content discrimination based on the very reasons why the particular class of speech at issue is proscribable. Similarly, Virginia's statute does not run afoul of the First Amendment insofar as it bans cross-burning with intent to intimidate. Unlike the statute at issue in RAV, the Virginia statute does not single out for opprobrium only that speech directed toward one of the specified disfavored topics. It does not matter whether an individual burns a cross with intent to intimidate because of the victim's race, gender, or religion, or because of the victim's political affiliation, union membership, or homosexuality. Moreover, as a factual matter, it is not true that cross-burners direct their intimidating conduct solely to racial or religious minorities. Indeed, in the case of Elliot and Omara, it is at least unclear whether the respondents burned a cross due to racial animus. The First Amendment permits Virginia to outlaw cross burnings done with the intent to intimidate because burning a cross is a particularly virulent form of intimidation. Instead of prohibiting all intimidating messages, Virginia may choose to regulate this subset of intimidating messages in light of cross-burning's long and pernicious history as a signal of impending violence. Thus, just as a state may regulate only that obscenity which is the most obscene 
due to its prurient content, so too may a state choose to prohibit only those forms of intimidation that are most likely to inspire fear of bodily harm. A ban on cross-burning carried out with the intent to intimidate is fully consistent with our holding in RAV and is proscribable under the First Amendment. With respect to Barry Black, we agree with the Supreme Court of Virginia that his conviction cannot stand, and we affirm the judgment of the Supreme Court of Virginia. With respect to Elliot and O'Mara, we vacate the judgment. It is so ordered. We've reached the end of the opinion. If you'd like to request a particular opinion to be read on the show, or you just want to say hello, navigate your way to the show's website at whatscotusrotus.podbean.com and click on the Contact tab. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What Scotus Wrote Us.